Well, good morning, Cornerstone. How we doing? Good, good. You're alive out there? Well, it's a great Sunday lined up for us, and not all Sundays are created equal. And what a blessing. If you're a guest here uh, joining us for the first time today, you picked a great Sunday to attend. I was telling uh, one of our first-time guests just uh, earlier before the service started uh, to have the fellowship um, that we're going to have in communion uh, second hour, and then to extend the right hand of fellowship to those who have recently joined the church. We're excited to do that, rejoicing in God's uh, faithfulness in that regard, your faithfulness as well as far as pursuing membership in the class and and asking all the questions that you might have about the church. And we, we hope uh, um, it's a blessing to you to have the opportunity and for the body to see everybody as we extend the right hand of fellowship and then following that after communion we have a communion lunch and I'm excited about tacos too Peter so yeah it's gonna it's gonna be good stuff well over the last three Sundays we've been working our way through a specific passage it's Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 I want to invite you to open your Bibles there this morning it's a sermon series called the grace of God series and if you're joining us for the first time today, you're welcome to go online and listen to some of the past messages because we're approaching the end of this passage. And the grace of God serves as the subject for this passage. And early on, we define God's grace as the utterly undeserved favor of God towards those who only deserve punishment. And this passage reveals different dynamics of God's grace for us. We studied the grace of God in salvation in verse 11, which is rooted in the doctrine of justification. We then studied the grace of God in sanctification in verse 12 and covered some important distinctions between the doctrines of justification and sanctification before taking a look at five comprehensive actions that promote a believer's sanctification in verse 12. And then last Sunday, we introduced the dynamic, dynamic of God's grace that helps us be prepared for the future, entitled in a message, Grace That Prepares You. And I shared that really all the dynamics of th this passage point to our future. They help us to be prepared. And due to time restrictions last week, we only finished the first point of the message. And so we're going to take time to cover our second preparation so that we can be zealous and confident for Christ's second coming. And you'll notice that the sermon outline is identical to last week. Well, let's read the entire passage before we zero in on verse 14. Starting in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2, it says this from the NAS. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
Our sermon proposition, of course, remains the same. Two preparations so that you can be zealous and confident for Christ's return. And last week we covered the first preparation, which was verse 13. God's word directs you and I to anticipate the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked specifically at the the verb looking for. And this word I shared conveys a deep longing and anticipation. In the Greek, looking for or watching for, depending on your translation, is a participle that's actually connected to the verb to live in verse 12. So it's describing something that is to be ongoing in this present age. And in the Greek, it's actually pointing to oneself. It it could actually be rendered looking for oneself, longing for oneself. We then focused on the two objects of anticipation in our subpoints, letters A and B. The Christian's blessed hope in Christ we shared serves as an anchor of the soul. Our hope in Christ should always eclipse the trials and the tribulations that come our way in this life. We said that the relentless storms and the raging waters of this life will always be there. And our hope helps us to overcome those trials. It also points us to the second object of anticipation, which is the actual appearing of Christ in his great glory and how the Lord chooses to display himself when he returns in glory is hard for us to comprehend. But God's word calls Christians to eagerly anticipate it with a great longing and desire. And we looked at a couple passages that helped us understand that his return in glory will actually mean our glorification. And we finished our first point by talking about three implications of this reality which are still listed in the outline for you. And that leaves us with verse 14. And one final preparation so that you can be zealous and confident for Christ's return. And again, we want to be ready. How many of you, at, at, towards the end of the spring, when the, the warmer days start, you call to get your air conditioning serviced in anticipation for the summer heat waves that are coming? Why do you do that? Well, you want to be prepared, Right? And the last thing you want to be doing is suffering needlessly when 100 degree temperatures are outside. So it pays to be prepared. And the same is true for us spiritually. Our preparations will prevent us from suffering needlessly as we hope in Christ and as we desire to live lives that will give God glory. The first preparation is to anticipate his second coming. And the second preparation is to appreciate his sacrifice. Our focus again will be on verse 14. And Paul, after pointing to our eschatological future in verse 13, he now reverts back to the historical work of Christ so that we can appreciate Christ both as Savior and as sanctifier. And this is right where we ended last week, by the way. Verse 14 reads, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. This is speaking, of course, to our salvation. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, speaking to sanctification, 
zealous for good deeds, speaking to service. And so our subpoints help spell out our progression of appreciation for God's ongoing work in our lives. And since we've already heard entire sermons on the grace of God in salvation and the grace of God in sanctification, the main point of verse 14 that you need to see is how salvation and sanctification progress and point us to good works, which is a major theme in the book of Titus. And remember the context of of the churches to whom Paul was writing to when he was writing to Titus. Due to false teaching, there was a major breakdown as these worldly influences were coming into the church. And they were having a negative impact on the testimonies of those in the church. And believers were being taught that there was really no connection between what they believed and how they were supposed to live. And so not only does Paul write this letter to prescribe to Titus to keep speaking the things that are fitting for sound doctrine and beliefs. But when Paul gets to the theological core of the letter, he makes sure that everyone sees that good deeds flow out of salvation. They flow out of sanctification. So we have three sub-points under this second preparation. For For the sake of making the point clear and in order to appreciate the Lord's sacrifice, we, we need to understand the purpose behind it, which our verse reveals for us, and it starts with your salvation. Look at verse 14. And it begins with the phrase, who gave himself for us. And this phrase theologically reflects the voluntary, exhaustive, and substitutionary work of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And this embodies the entire subject of grace that's mentioned in verse 11, which again is our singular subject. What was that grace? It was the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation to all men that we already studied in verse 11. The Lord Jesus Christ willingly took on human flesh. He stepped out of heaven to offer himself up on the cross. And he did this on his own initiative. And he even says this in John 10, 18. Nobody took his life, but that he was offering it up himself. He wasn't forced to do it. He willingly gave himself up for us. And the us in this verse is Paul referring to himself, to Titus and to the other Cretan believers. And by implication, it now refers to us, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. And the us is only speaking to believers because the near context helps us to see this. But the question that Paul wanted Titus to help the Cretan believers see is for what purpose? Why did Christ give himself up? Was it so that they could continue to live the same way they did before? But now with the added bonus of eternal life. Paul wanted to provide clarification. So in the Greek language, he now supplies a purpose clause that spells out more specifically the aim of Jesus' sacrifice of himself. Normally we see a so that or an order that, but that's not the case In our English translations, it's lost to smooth out the English again. And the purpose clause is connected to two verbs, to redeem and to purify. And the first, of course, is speaking to our salvation. 
and redemption. The second, speaking to our sanctification, which will be our next sub-point. And verse 14 continues, to redeem us from all wickedness or lawlessness. Saving grace through the atoning work of Christ was to redeem us from all lawlessness. And this expression stresses our deliverance from the bondage to lawlessness through Christ's ransom. And to redeem here means to free someone by paying a price. And we actually sang that moments ago in one of the songs. What was that price? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 helps believers understand the price tag for our salvation when it says, starting in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And I was so encouraged by our worship set. It was, it was, as we, we sang about it, as we prepare our hearts for communion, Christ's blood redeemed us. His blood redeems because it paid the ultimate price. And the remainder of our clause helps us see what it paid for. And to fully appreciate Christ's sacrifice and the redeeming value of His blood, we, we also need to understand lawlessness. Most people, when they hear the terms lawlessness or wickedness, they shy away from those terms. They, they think somehow, we think in our minds that it's reserved only for the most heinous criminals. The murderers and the thieves, right? In the Greek, the preposition from indicates the effective removal from a, a sphere of wickedness and our deliverance from all aspects of being dominated by lawlessness. My life, your life, Every person on this planet, their life without Christ is dominated by lawlessness. And this is a healthy view of human depravity. And it may assist understanding if you equate lawlessness with lifelessness. Living in the flesh without any spiritual life, unbelievers have no capacity or desire to honor God's law. Unbelievers not only fail to keep God's law, but in their hearts, they even view it with contempt. From the time a person is born, all they do is accrue a record of ongoing lawlessness. Raise your hand if you've ever had to take a criminal background check for your job or at work or, or school or to serve somewhere, maybe in our children's ministries. Huh? We're on a tight ship on the other side of that wall. Okay? Imagine getting a criminal background check. And if you're like many people in the room, that you may not even have a violation. Or you, there, there might not even be any record. But imagine if on your background check, if the printer never stopped printing the report. It just kept printing and printing and printing. And all it did was keep spewing out this ongoing list of felonies revealing that you continue to break every state and federal law day after day without end. That would be alarming, would it not? And this provides a picture of what is meant here when it says all lawlessness. But the laws that are broken are not man's laws. They're God's laws. 
And yet Christ redeemed us from our endless pursuit of a life of lawlessness and lifelessness. His blood gave us new life by giving us new hearts. God saved you from only caring about yourself. He enabled you to love Him back and to love others in return. He enabled you to wage war against that selfish, self-serving, self-glorifying, self-entitled, self-loving person who used to sit on the throne with three selfish objectives. You can write these down. Serve self. The second one is serve self. And the third one is to serve self. Just in case you forget. That was it. An endless pursuit of self. An absolute endless pursuit. And what a miserable life it is entrapped in the service of self and personal glory. And the reality of your salvation should cause your heart to appreciate the sacrifice of Christ so that you can be ready and zealous and confident for Christ's return. And think about it. Unbelievers have no interest in the second coming of Christ because they had no interest in this first coming. Why why should they be interested in the second coming? But those of us who have had our hearts changed forever by his first coming, we take time to appreciate his sacrifice and it makes us zealous for his return. We'll see him face to face. We will also be glorified and able to love God and each other perfectly for the first time ever in our lives and our joy will be made complete in his presence. The wait will finally be over forever. And today's a perfect day for us as we celebrate communion to focus on the redemptive work of Christ and salvation. It provides us with an opportunity to appreciate his sacrifice so that we can be zealous and confident for his return. And there are many expressions of God's grace in salvation that can help us cultivate a deeper appreciation for our salvation. Just listen to these expressions. You can write them down if you want to. I am redeemed. I am born again. I am forgiven. I am saved. I am justified. I am reconciled. I am adopted. I am perfectly righteous in God's sight. I am free of condemnation. I am eternally secure, and I am God's forever. That's just the, the beginning of the list. We, we, we think about those things, and we meditate on that reality, and it encourages us greatly. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ are so blessed to appreciate his sacrifice for our salvation. God graciously gave us eyes to see and to know the truth. As we were running a hellbound race in pursuit of self and self and more self. Perhaps that person is you today. Listen, every person on the planet falls short of the glory of God. 
Nobody is deserving. Nobody is good enough. Nor can you ever make yourself worthy or good enough for God's salvation. Yet God extends it in love to those who are willing to repent and give their lives to Him. And when you ask the Lord for the forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, God grabs a hold of you and promises that He will never, ever, ever let go. If you're not all in for Christ, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And this is where true life begins. Then you'll be able to learn and grow and mature so that you can live a life that will give God glory. And this opens up the door to the second way that we can appreciate the sacrifice of Christ, and that is in our appreciation, which is letter B under preparation number two. Look at the last part of verse 14. He gave himself up to redeem us from every lawless deed. And then here we get the second prong of purpose. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The work of God in salvation is the necessary prelude to the positive and progressive work of sanctification. And once we've been forgiven and declared righteous... In his sight, we're enabled to deal with the presence of sin in our lives with his divine assistance. And the verb to purify is used quite a bit in the New Testament, 31 times, but it's only used three times by the Apostle Paul. And every single time that he uses it, it's in the context of sanctification. And I want us to see each of these by Paul because... There are takeaways for us that will help us appreciate our sanctification and that will encourage us to be even more ready and zealous for Christ's return. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to read verse 1 together. And after talking about the, the, the promises of God, Paul, Paul says this when he uses and employs this verb, Beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Those familiar with the setting in the church of Corinth, you know that it was a moral debauchery. I mean, it was to Corinthianize meant to live in absolute sexual immorality and all kinds of gross immorality. And so, the sins that were plaguing the testimony of the church in Corinth got so bad that Paul sent two letters previously to 2 Corinthians. One before even 1 Corinthians that was called the previous letter that wasn't included in the part of the canon. And I think there is a reason for that because I'm sure Paul was upset to hear about some of these things and maybe that letter was written more in the flesh And not in the spirit. Again, we can only speculate because we don't have access to that letter. But we have access to the more perfect letters. The ones that were inspired by the Lord. And so, 
1 Corinthians is a letter of correction that the Holy Spirit led him to write addressing the sins that were infecting the church. And all of the letters were hard for Paul to write. And he took no joy in writing the letters. And I'll share it's even one of the, 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 the battles that we face even as elders just when, we, when talking about sin and the, the, the difficulties that people are facing as it relates to sin. There's no joy in that. There's no joy in that. But yet, Paul, in, to, to, to bring his, his faithfulness and to honor the Lord, he, he did it, and he even shares that he took no joy in, in the context of 2 Corinthians 7, if you want to go on and read that uh, context at a later point. And so God used Paul because he wants the church to be sanctified. And so this opening verse of chapter 7 cuts straight to the heart. And again, the verse reads, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And I love how the verse ends because it accurately reflects our sanctification and it actually provides a spiritually healthy basis for our sanctification. You know what it is? It's, It's the fear of God. And when we get to 1 John in our care groups, in chapter 4, when we get to verse 18, it says that perfect love casts out fear, right? 1 John 4, 18 says that. But in that context, it lets us know that it's talking about condemnation. And, and we're free from the fear of God, in con- from the fear of condemnation. But there is something to be said about cultivating a very healthy fear in our lives as believers. And it assists our sanctification. In the NAS it says perfecting holiness, while the ESV says bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And both are solid translations. And this participle in the Greek could actually be rendered continually bringing holiness to completion as it supports the verb to cleanse ourselves. And the Apostle Paul includes himself with the Corinthians. I don't know what your bedtime routine looks like in your house, but I can share just a little bit about what it looks like at the Cricks. Um, It usually involves getting all three of our children into the bathtub. They're you know, crawling around, our oldest, Lydia, will be turning four next month, Sophia's two, and then Liam's just learning to crawl around the floor, and he's, I mean, that's pig pen all the way, isn't it, sweetie? I mean, he is just like, we, we should, somebody needs to invent, like, little mops that they can put on uh, that, the front hands of, of babies that are crawling, and then little pads on their knees, and they just go around, because you pick them up, and you're just like, what happened to you? Well, so they're just, they're just dirty. And so uh, Victoria will get the tub going, and all three kids will, will be in the, the, the tub, and she'll transition the kids out of the tub, and I'll try to be as helpful as I possibly can be. And usually what she'll end up asking me to do, because there is so much dirt on them, she'll ask me, she'll oh, be like, sweetie, can you go back to the tub and, and uh, pull the plug on, on the drain? And this is where the story begins. I go back to the tub, and I just look at that water. And I just stand there, 
amazed, like all that dirt was, was on our kids. It's just, I didn't want to stick my hand down in there, honestly. Like, let's, let's trade on this. Victoria, I'll put the pajamas on. You want to get that, that slimy drain down at the bottom. Well, I'm telling you, after they, 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 they play and they, they get their pajamas on, after I pull the, 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 the drain and, and I see all that dirt, it's such a good reminder for me. The illustration serves as a good spiritual and sanctifying reminder that we're exposed to the filth of this world. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul was telling the Corinthian believers to make sure that they take a spiritual bath. Cleanse yourself from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. The things in this world that soil the body and mind. And I want to ask you a personal, spiritual question. Do you bathe in the Word of God? I didn't ask if you showered. And then, I think most of us recognize the fact that bathing is pretty uncommon practice. A lot of people, some people still enjoy taking baths, but for the sake of efficiency and in our fast-paced culture... What do we do? We jump in the shower real quick. And I think this is reflective of the spiritual hygiene that exists in the church. We, we, take, we jump into a quick shower. We jump into a quick um, passage in, in the Bible in the morning. We crack open um, you know, a, a devotional. It's about this big. It's got maybe 20 or 30 words on it on, on the page. And we read that. And we don't soak. We don't bathe. And just like when, ladies, you know all about this, cooking in the kitchen with the pots and pans, when the rice gets stuck on those pots, and, or if you, you scrambled some eggs and you burnt some eggs and it gets stuck on there, what do you need to do? You need to let it soak. Right? That's, that's the only way to get it off. And I'm telling you, church, there are things in our lives and in the filth of this world that encrusts itself on us. And we can get, in our showering mentality, we can get used to it being there. And we don't soak. And we don't let the Word of God set in. To remove it. And remember that sanctification is the progressive work of both God and man so that we can sin less and less and we can become more and more like Christ. How committed have you been in your sanctification? How committed have you been to grow so that your life can give Christ more glory? And if you haven't been bathing in God's Word, are you willing to map out 30 minutes by getting up a little bit earlier? Or maybe you skip a physical workout at the gym for the sake of a spiritual one at home. And this is, that's 1 Timothy 4, 8 all the way. 
and it provides the, the right perspective with that. Perhaps you're somebody who enjoys the rich blessing, right, of bathing in the word. And praise God, because you've seen the value of that in your life, in your study. What, a, what an encouragement. Are you willing to walk alongside someone in your care group who struggles, who, who is not willing to make the commitment? They, they, they're, they're, they're not there. They're looking for somebody to disciple them and come alongside with them. And you'll take notice. And again, this is the, the nature of something that we have to cultivate as a discipline in our life. And I'm very thankful to, in, in the group of men that I have in my care group. And when they show up and I see on the pages of their study guides, you know, they've written down answers to the questions in the outline. They've spent time. They're, they're soaking, and, and, and we get to bless each other with that. But you can make observations, and if somebody doesn't seem like they're engaged, how can you bless them? How can you bring them along? How can you study together? How can you help them to see the importance of bathing in God's Word? God's Word plays a vital role in our sanctification, so much so that the Lord Jesus Christ, right, when He was praying for the disciples... In John 17, 17, he says, Father, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. And we'll also see God's word emphasized in the third and final passage that Paul uses this verb to purify or to cleanse, which is found in Ephesians 5, 26. You can flip there real quick if you want to see it. I'll actually give you the context of, of Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, because this is husband's... Uh, being called to, to love their wives. But then we're going to see virtually the same dynamic that we see in Titus 2.14. It says, just as Christ also loved the church, and here's that same expression, and gave himself up for her. And then the purpose statement, so that Christ might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. It's right there. Verse 27, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And why do we bathe in God's word? Because it is his prescribed way for us to be sanctified so that we can give him glory. It is doxological in its purpose. And Titus 2.14 shares a couple more reasons that we need to see. Look at the middle of verse 14. To purify, and then it says, for himself, a people for his own possession. One commentator shared, it was not simply a single person whom Christ bought, but a whole people. The singular form of the word people pictures all the redeemed of all time as being the goal and desire of Christ's heart. It refers to that which is chosen and thus special. The blood-wrought cleansing of Christ's sacrifice enables believers to be restored to fellowship with God as, quote, a people that are his very own, end quote, just as our verse describes. We appreciate Christ's sacrifice 
when we live our lives in such a way that he desires in, in the prescribed sanctification so that we can give glory back to him. And the more sanctified that we become, listen church, the more sanctified that we come, the more Christ-like that we become, the more ready and confident we will be for his return. We will long for his return. Well, there's a third and final sub-point, and it's this. Appreciate his sacrifice for your service. Look at the end of verse 14. After it says, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Our verse concludes with the phrase, zealous for good deeds. One last clause rounds out the sentence and further describes God's sanctified people. They are zealous for good deeds. And again, I've already shared this. The theme of good deeds is, is rich throughout the book of Titus. And Paul acknowledges that those such deeds cannot save a person in Titus 3.5. They are the necessary evidence of one who is truly saved. In a very familiar epistle, the Apostle James shares in James 2.20 that faith without works is it's dead. It's useless. That's what that word means. It's useless. And so an emphasis on good works is an emphasis on active faith. For there is no such thing as a passive faith in sanctification. There just isn't. There just isn't. And Paul told Titus in 2.7, he, he even says, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine. He also instructs Titus to inform the Cretan believers in 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And then again in 3.8, he, he uses even stronger language in 3.8, he says, these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds before mentioning good works one last time in the final verse before his farewell salutation. Good works flow out of salvation. Good works flow out of sanctification. And one theologian shared for those who have been redeemed from the doom of sin and death and brought into a unique relationship with God, the true voluntary response is to be an enthusiastic, is to be enthusiastic to do what is good. Puritan writer Richard Baxter expressed it this way. This is a great quote. Oh, that Christians were careful to live with one eye on Christ crucified and the other on his glory. That quote reflects very well what is being communicated to us in Titus 2.14. That one eye would be fixed on Christ crucified, right? To appreciate the salvation that he has provided for us. And that the other eye would be fixed on his glory as he sanctifies us and sets us apart so that we can be zealous for good deeds. 
such a great balance. So how do we apply this desire for good deeds? I got one final passage I want to show you. So if you'll just turn with me to Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. It expresses it this way. And this would be a great passage to bathe in this week to assess your zeal and desire for good works. Hebrews 10, verse 23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the blessings that we have as we gather every week corporately as a church is to talk about the different ministry opportunities that the Lord has opened up for us right here at Cornerstone. And we want to stimulate, or this word can also be translated encourage, or a cause of something by spurring on to love one another and to good deeds. And the ministries of the church provide an outlet for good deeds as we serve Christ by serving in children's ministries, by serving on the audio team, by serving in the snacks, by Uh, showing up Sunday morning to serve the body so that the service can exalt Christ by praying in that room right up there. The opportunity to serve our youth. The opportunities to uh, do outreach. The opportunities to bless our missionaries and to support them and to write them an email. Send them an encouragement. I'll share this. Uh, Gina and Julia, praise God for them, right? We rejoice in how God's using them. We're going to hear a little bit of an update on them second hour. First holiday in Czech Republic. Away from family. Away from the people that they love in this room. Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it be something? We make sure that they know that they're missed. And we, we just, and, and again, this doesn't have to be an organized effort, however the Lord leads, but we, we, we want to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And I, I praise God for being at a church where so, so many people serve the Lord with such faithfulness. It encourages, it just encourages me. Pastor Kurt, when he came for our retreat, he was just blown away. He was just blown away by the effective service of the saints in the church. He was so encouraged. Yet, I wouldn't be honoring the word if I didn't ask about those who currently aren't plugged into a ministry or an area of service. And it's a question that should be asked. Could your lack of service indicate that your appreciation for Christ's sacrifice for your salvation and your sanctification 
is lacking. I submit to you that might be the problem. Take some time this week and ask the Lord how he wants you to serve him at Cornerstone. How does he want you to serve who? Who did I say? Him. How does he want you to serve him at Cornerstone through the ministry outlets that he has made available to you? And I love the way Hebrews 10, 25 finishes. And it's most appropriate considering the two preparations that you and I can be zealous and confident for Christ's second coming. Verse 25 ends with this, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the day drawing near? He's coming. Cornerstone, he's coming. He's coming. And I thought about even running over in the middle of the sermon to look out the window as a, a, as a physical illustration. But then I already pictured the elders giving me feedback at our next meeting. Just be like, that been pretty cheesy. We're glad that you didn't do that, okay? But he is, you know. He's coming. And just as real as that it would be for me to walk over there and look out that window to see if he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Be prepared. Be pre- prepared. Uh, uh, appreciate what he has done. Let the glory of Christ's name be the passion of our lives as our forgiven hearts respond to the good works and the spiritual gifts that he has prepared in advance for us to walk in. And a wise man once said, it is the true badge of his divine ownership. He who eagerly awaits the return of the Savior will be eager also to further his cause by good works until he comes. Until he comes. Amen and amen. Pray with me. Father, you're gracious, you're kind. We thank you for Titus 2.14 and how it has allowed us to see your ongoing work in our lives. We're forever thankful. And unlike us, it's common to start something and not finish it. But not you. Not you. What you start, you will finish. And you will complete the work in us. And in our salvation, we could make no effort. It was monergistic all the way. There was one worker, and that was you, the great God of the universe. But in our sanctification, you have enabled us to work with you. Paul says that very thing. In, in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, you record it for us to even see it, that you work with us. We rejoice in you. We ask that you'll help us to be faithful as you sanctify us for your glory and for your namesake. And it's a dirty, filthy, sin-infected world 
And I think every person here, Father, would agree that it's not merely enough to show up on Sunday to bathe once a week. We couldn't imagine doing that physically. And help us to see, Father, that you wouldn't have that for us spiritually. That you would want us to bathe daily. That you would want us to soak in the word. That it will continue to allow you to uh, remove the influences in our life that are going to have a negative impact on our fellowship with you and on our spiritual growth. We need your help. You can lead us to die to self. And yet you want us to work. You want us to lean in to your effort. Whoever serves is to serve in the strength which you supply. You want us to employ our gifts. You want us to be good stewards of the manifold grace that you have given us. Help us to be good stewards of all that you've entrusted us with as it relates to our sanctification. We ask, Father, that as we even come to this time of communion, maybe there's confession that needs to take place. Would you work within all of our hearts, my own, Father, would you allow me to see and be convicted over poor stewardship and the reality that I need to deny things that are pressing you out thank you father for just even hearing the meditation of our hearts this morning we're all in different places and i want to pray specifically father that if there's someone here today that does not know you that they've been living life on their own and they've been serving the unholy trinity of me myself and i that today you would bring them to the end of their self and that you would have them fall on their face pleading with you for forgiveness and a new start in life. And that they could actually start living for your glory instead of their own. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. We look forward to our time of fellowship and to second hour, which will be such a blessing. We thank you again for this day, asking you to bless the remainder of it. In Jesus' name, amen.